morning, food lovers all over the world. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Pegg. And today, we're really going to be addressing issues of the smarts in the kitchen. Get your pencil and paper handy, folks. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to start out with them. I mean, you're going to want to make notes and give all your notes to your friends. And goodness knows what else you're not going to want to do after you hear from... Well, Francisco Magoya is our lead-off interview today, and of course uh, he's involved with this whole modernist cooking project, um, and, uh, and they've gone through modernist cuisine, um, what are some of the other ones, modernist bread, modernist something else, and right now they picked, of all things, everybody's favorite food, we're going to talk to Francisco Magoya about modernist pizza. Well, it's, it's good to talk to Francisco Magoya once again, and it's wonderful seeing the latest efforts of your modernist project. Uh, it's, it's just simply amazing. I'm not even sure where to start, uh, Francisco. Um, maybe for listeners that aren't uh, up to speed on this, can you briefly define this modernist, um, what do we call it, a project, or and your food sure. lab? Right, so we are modernist cuisine, and our number one uh, objective is to write books, and that might be a, an understatement. Our books are pretty big. They're multi-volume <laughs> books. <laughs> and they usually take a number of years to complete. Our latest book, Modernist Pizza, is uh, out on sale October 5th. It was a four-year project that focused on the world of pizza. Prior to that, we had a book that we published in 2017 titled Modernist Bread, which was another deep dive. That was a five-year deep dive into the art and science of bread and bread baking, and prior to that, we published Martin's Cuisine. I was not part of that project. That was before my time. And that is uh, the science of cooking. So we take these subjects and we really explore them. We take, uh, you know, our, our you know, years to complete them. It's a, we're a, a group of 25 people that devote ourselves to the subject. Um, it's not 25 people working in the kitchen, per se. There's, there's five of us that work in the kitchen, but... There's a group of photographers, uh, publishers, editors. It's a, it's a whole team that, that makes this whole project happen. And then who's, uh, recap for our listeners, whose idea it was? So my boss and the founder of Modernist Cuisine is Nathan Mervold, who is many things, and one of the things is a uh, food enthusiast. He's I mean, be, I would say he's beyond enthusiast. Yeah, I mean, I would say um, beyond too. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, he has a, a passion for food and uh, extreme encyclopedic knowledge of, of science and gastronomy. And he founded Modernist Cuisine over, I would say, like 12 years ago uh, because the books that he wanted about cooking didn't exist, so he decided to just write them instead. <laughs> um <laughs> And, and you that have this first project. And you have Sorry, this amazing ahead. lab, the food lab. But I wanted to get yes. in there that Nathan uh, is, among other things, a, a, a photographer. 
and um, this, these volumes are heavily uh, set up on on gorgeous um, photography, yes. and and he's a yes. perfectionist, and also that I mean he he comes from a very complex uh, Renaissance man kind of background, mm-hmm. being a former yes. chief technology officer of Microsoft. Um, yes. So I mean it's it's a combination of um, passion, uh, discipline, uh, science. Uh, with, uh, I mean, all so many different things. And was yes. Nathan was Nathan the founder of Microsoft, who appeared on Dancing with the Stars? No. I don't know who that was. was. I, I don't know. There was a, no. Was, I was can't. Another, I can't see a, Nathan. As uh, anybody in Boston, I, I can't see him dancing with the stars but, um, <laughs> at all. People uh, who see no. this, people who see this um, modernist cuisine lab, freak out. It's complete with just about everything, isn't it? Yes, this is a. Uh, I mean, I feel very privileged to work in this kitchen. There's, it's a, it's a large kitchen that has. It's just very well equipped, and every time we embark on a new project, there's certain you know pieces of equipment that need to be rotated out and rotated in. Like for our pizza book, we had to obviously get some pizza-specific ovens in place. I mean, these are ovens that we couldn't really have had for our bread project or any other project, so we had to you know, put those in place. But we also have a lot of scientific equipment uh, to perform experiments, but also to measure results. Uh, so we can give like quantitative data to you know our, our readers and to give informed decisions and to make our decisions based on science uh, more so than you know personal preference, which is fine. It's fine to have a personal preference, obviously, but uh, I think people are very interested in our books for the science that is behind them. Well, who would have expected you to select uh, as your latest project pizza and to produce a three-volume set of books on this subject. I mean, why pizza? It's a, it's a very good question because, it, 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 you know, some people would wonder the same thing. And there, there is an important reason, and the reason is that when we were about to finish our Modernist Bread book back in 2016, um, we, our book was too big. It was even bigger than it turned out to be. So our, the final count was five volumes. It was going to be about six volumes. So we had to trim some content out and we had to, you know, sacrifice some of the, the content that was in it already to keep it at five volumes. And we thought, you know, if we do take pizza out, we can then give it its due space in its own book. And it just made sense to segue from a bread book, you know, which is a book on fermented doughs, to pizza, which are also fermented doughs, albeit they're treated very differently at one point. But it it was in order to free up content in our in our bread book, but also because it was a fascinating subject. And, you know, we had a lot of recipes in our bread book, but you know, I'm glad we, we took this separate uh project on because there was there was so much more to it than just a few recipes as we had included in our book. So it it ended up being three volumes and ended up having, you know, we have about 1,600 pages in this book, uh, hundreds of recipes, um, any every type of, of pizza you can imagine, 
is in this book. So it's it's it required its own um, years of, of study and dedication. Did you What's check the four years, right? I'm, I'm wondering, four years, wondering yeah. if I'm wondering if you checked with Queen Margarita <laughs> to, to, make, well, to make sure it was all right. I, I will tell you that there's one of the things that we did research was the fact that uh, that whole story about Queen Margarita and the Pizzeria Brandi in Naples, which claims to have provided her with a pizza, is untrue. The, that yeah. document that they have on their in their in their pizzeria is a complete forgery. But they still have it up there, and you know people buy it. You know they they're like, okay, we'll believe you, but it is absolutely false. Which is it's quirky and. And you know it, it it serves a particular purpose to attract tourists, I suppose. But uh, but yeah, it's one of those claims that we kind of uh, disavowed. So so, so what's so what's the alternative story about the 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 history of how pizza got started? Well, we'd have to talk for like five or six hours exactly. about that. But I will, <laughs> I will give you <laughs> I will give you the. Uh, you know, the basic uh, precept of where does pizza come from is that it does come from Naples. I mean, pizza is, its birthplace is Naples, which is in the region of Campania in Italy. And its origin predates the unification of Italy, which was in uh, the 1860s. The, the first mention of pizza in any published material is in the year 1799. And... It was, you know, it was basically this pizzaiolo who couldn't pay his debt and he was asking for forgiveness of his debt. Uh, we don't know what happened after that, but that's the first time in print that we see the term pizzaiolo. Uh, pizzaiolo means the person who makes pizza makes in pizza. Italian. So, uh, so that's the first, the word pizza does appear before, you know, it, it actually appears centuries before that, but the term the word pizza has meant many things throughout time. It's even meant a sweet dessert. Um, it, it's meant a you know anything that is flat. But the pizza, as you and I know it today, it dates the first historical uh, trace is in 1799. But this is not to say it did not exist before that. Keep in mind that pizza is and had been considered a food of the poor, and so therefore it didn't receive the due, uh, you know, research to it or due documentation, it was considered something unimportant and, you know, some food that fed the masses. So it could have easily have existed prior to 1799, but that's the first historical reference we have of it. Uh, it is interesting that, you know, Italy took so long to embrace tomatoes, um, you know, well, with that's such a crucial part. Your world. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but yeah. because tomatoes were available in Europe, you know, in the 1500s, but they weren't utilized in cuisine uh, they until the 1700s. Well, they were poisonous for a long time, right? Well, people thought they were poisonous, right? And mm -hmm. so they stayed away from it. Uh, they thought there was this whole, like, theory that nightshades uh, are, you know, poisonous, and if you eat a tomato, you're going to die. And so obviously that kept people <laughs> away from it. Uh, but I think that if you're poor and you have a tomato, you're going to take the risk if you're starving, right? And so they realize, <laughs> well, this is, not, this is not something that is going to kill us. It's actually delicious. And why can't we put it on this, you know, dough and put some cheese on it and, you know, cook it in an oven? So it, it was 
and I mean, can we even think about Italian gastronomy now without tomatoes? That's it's almost like uh, how could you, right? I mean, it, and 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 it just took that long to get into uh, Italian cuisine. Now you you it's called your book has been called the Encyclopedia of Pizza, which mm-hmm. it is, and you give all kinds of history, and you analyze mm-hmm. every one of the ingredients and so forth. The thing that I find is amazing about this is that you focus not just on the history or on interesting recipes, but you you focus on the future of pizza, new discoveries and techniques, which you have introduced in these volumes. Yes. And yes. that, I think, is different. It's not just... Um, a culinary research resource. Mm-hmm. Um, it yes, it also know, there, yes. mm-hmm. it, it benefits ahead. from your experience. Yeah, I think that the you know people who are familiar with our books uh, have come to expect that sort of uh, okay. This is where pizza is now. This is what how we interpret it. You know, because we give we want to give people you know the basic you know. Let's let's call it a normal recipe, right? For something, um, you know, something that is, you know, but I don't want to say traditional because what is traditional? But we also take, you know, those recipes which we present as, you know, your base recipes, and then we also create a modernist version of those recipes. Um, and this is not to say that, you know, it, it's got like smoke and mirrors in it. You know, sometimes modernism means improving a recipe's the process of a recipe. It doesn't always mean like adding, you know, magic powders to a dough to make it, you know, bigger or whatever, you know, people might imagine. Um, sometimes it is just the innovation is in the process, not necessarily in the final result. Um, and But sometimes it is in the final result. Sometimes, you know, I think we, we came up with a few ideas that I think are, are pretty unique in the realm of, of pizza and, and, you know, styles of pizza and how to present it and how to cook it and how to eat it. Um, that, you know, I think that that's part of the, I hate to say the term brand, but that's part of what modernist cuisine does. And you've, I mean, you, this actually was involved a lot more travel and uh, yes. on-site um, research than your other books in many ways, huh? Yes, because this is something that we needed to learn about. I mean, I think that there's, in 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 anything, you know, you might be good at, you know, one thing that you learn or a couple things, a couple of different things, you know, I, I'm saying as a professional cook or chef, but in the realm of pizza, there's many different styles and they're very different from each other. And so for us, we needed to go to the places of origin of these different styles of pizza, obviously Naples, we went to Italy three times uh, in 2018, three separate times. Um, to visit the pizzerias, to talk to the pizzaiolos, to ask them, uh, you know, to show us how they made their pizza, you know, and they were very fortunate. Most most of them were. Some were very secretive. Like, there's one uh, pizzaiolo who makes a fantastic pizza. His name is Francesco Martucci. Uh, his, his pizzeria is ranked, I think, number one or number two in Italy, and he's super nice guy, um, fantastic pizza, but he has a special room where he makes his dough that is... Uh, you can't get through it. it. It has a password combination to get through that door <laughs> where they make the dough. So, Funny. I mean, I can respect that, and it, and it is part of the mythology of, you know, his, his fantastic pizza. But for the most part, we had people that were very willing to share um, and, and show us and, you know, 
obviously we had to taste uh, a number of pizzas. It is there is such a thing as too many pizzas. Believe me, there is such a thing. <laughs> well, you, as, you have this, you have all the numbers here in that one section, uh, and around the yes. world pizza adventure, and and you you visited 255 pizzerias worldwide. Yes, and, correct. And, yeah, and it was um, two to four pizzas eaten at each pizzeria on average. Um, and on average. Then, mm-hmm. I, I love the the one where you said. Um, uh, about the number of calories consumed. <laughs> no, that is, you cannot, I mean, there is, you cannot count that. I mean, that is just impossible to count, but it was m- thousands of calories. Yeah. Um, but that's, that, that is an important part of it. it. It is exhausting to taste 15 pizzas a day, 16 sometimes. Uh, I mean, the best pizza is the first one you have that day. The worst is the last. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, you know, as, as you a just, restaurant critic, I found this, too. I mean, they, when you get into these tasting menus that go for 24 courses, oh, yeah. I mean, oh, you, you, you re- really begin to have pallets of cheese. I mean, there's no question about sure. it. So, you're I not love full this anymore. That, you're probably too full. The what? Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I, mean, I, love, I mean, there's a point where you're just, like, too full. So Exactly. I love your take on Salvador Dali. <laughs> Speaking of the story of myself, I thought that was a riot. What gave yeah, you that idea? You know, it was a, I think, well, people, just to give people a, a, an idea of what it is, it's, it, there's, a, um, there's a painting that Salvador Dali made, which is the melting clocks, and it's a surrealist painting of clocks that are, they seem to be melting. And it, to us, uh, when we saw it, and I think this was Nathan's idea, uh, it was to create a, a replica or inspired by that painting, but pizza theme. So instead of using clocks, we used pizzas. Uh, there's <laughs> a, uh, you know, there's a Vesuvius in the background, and so we, we tried to recreate it with a pizza theme. So those are the <laughs> pictures that Nathan likes to take for the books. He doesn't, so for example, the, the pictures that are the step-by-step, like the how-to pictures, he doesn't photograph those he photographs the ones that are we call beauty shots or you know pictures uh-huh. like that um, yeah. but he also took a lot of pictures during our travels because you know he was in all of our travels and so for example he would take panoramic views of Naples or of Tokyo or of Buenos Aires you know we he would we would find a hotel that had a balcony and he would just photograph like the whole city and so um, and among that, you know, many other kinds of, of, of photographs, but that was essentially uh, a big part of this project was to get some really good pictures, and, and, you know, that's part of what he did. Yeah, well, I think we all agree. He's not somebody who does anything halfway. <laughs> no, that is true. Yeah, you, you, you remember one time we stayed, in, we stayed in Naples. I think it was at a Sheraton Hotel, and out, out the window of our balcony in the hotel was framed members who uh-huh. yeah I remember to- oh, to- totally framed by by the by the windows yeah yeah how beautiful gorgeous vistas well you examine different styles of pizza and there are many many styles um did you ever mm-hmm. did you get up close to sicilian pizza which is what i was raised on yeah, we did, of course. I mean, I think that that is a that is a style, uh, style that was uh, originally it was it was created in in New York. It has does not have anything to do with pizza in Sicily, but 
People call it Sicilian. We found a lot of people that call it New York Square or just a square. Um, yeah. But, yeah, that's, well, that is that We is always called it, style. my family is Sicilian, and we always called it Pizza Alta, you know, because oh, okay. it, was, it was thick, high. Uh-huh. And and okay. and and the the thing about it was, uh, it didn't even have tomatoes. It, it just you took mm-hmm. onions and anchovies and punched it into the risen dough, and that was oh, okay. that, that was the pizza. Like yeah. Uh-huh. Did you run into that? Not cheese either. No, that yeah, that to me sounds like focaccia. But that I would definitely call that focaccia. I would not call it Sicilian. So, yeah, I mean, to I mean, me, Sicilian sort of has like tomato cross. sauce and cheese. Yeah, it's sure. a cross between that and but so, and you, so you do the different styles of pizza and um uh-huh. including Brazil. I didn't know they had a big strong pizza tradition. Um Yeah, I mean and, we didn't either until we started this project. We had a trip that we specifically went to Sao Paulo because there was a huge emigration uh, from of Italians to to Brazil specifically Sao Paulo, and it's a city that has 2,000 pizzerias and a, a very specific style. It's a very thin crust style of pizza, so we, we combine that with a trip to Buenos Aires, which also has a, a really huge Italian immigrant uh, population and a very specific style of pizza. It's, there, it's the opposite. It's very thick with a lot of cheese, and it's baked in a pan, so it's, it, it was a very interesting to see that these two countries that are right next to each other have such different styles. Right. Well, you, you go into each piece of equipment, and um, and, and also, and yeah. um, um, you do what has become sort of the modernist cuisine trademark. You do the the equipment with the product, and then cut away. I've read somewhere yeah. you actually do cut away, don't you? Yeah, the uh, the cutaway is a way of like almost like an x-ray, right, of what's going on inside things when they're cooking and when they're baking and, you know, so people can get a, a visual. And that is a, sort of like a trademark of, you know, how our books are put together to illustrate how cooking's happening. What's, what are the, what are the, 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 what is happening in this, you know, food that is cooking and to explain it uh, in a better way that is, is more explicit to people. Yeah, I'm not sure I understand it all. I mean, it seems to be kind of technical, the infrared and the conduction. And <laughs> but Yeah, um, I mean, that's Nathan. I'm sure it's something you know, more one sophisticated. One of his for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you go into just about anything that anybody would ever want to know about the ingredients. Like, uh, I was just amazed at, at your – I never even thought of, of the aging um, – the, the mozzarella and, and how it affects the, the pizza. Um, and you do that with a bunch of your... And you have a... What do we call that section where if something goes wrong, what do we call that? Uh, hacks uh, to rescue uh, stuff. Um, well, there's hacks, but there's also troubleshooting. Troubleshooting, um, that's the word I wanted. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, why yeah, don't you I mean, explain... Why don't you yeah. explain, though, something I think is very important in this book, is what you concluded after all these years to deal with this about your favorite flavor combinations. Talk to us about mm-hmm. that. Well, I mean, I think that, that it, I mean, it's very personal. I mean, and, and we had, you know, some some flavor combinations and some, by flavors it's, it means like basically different toppings that you put on pizza that 
we seem to like uh, very much. And obviously, we like a regular, like pepperoni slice or a regular cheese slice. Those always have their place. But every now and then, we'd come across a pizzeria that did something really special and it gave us an idea. Or we would think about the food that we make here at Marinus Cuisine and think about, you know, how is that something that we could put on pizza that would be good? Like, for example, our the pastrami that we make here, which is one of the most delicious things I've ever eaten, it turns out it's also fantastic on a pizza. I bet. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, there there was just so many. I mean, I think one of the, the important aspects of pizza is that there are many, I mean, it's really only limited by one's imagination what can go on it, uh, and I guess also limited by availability of produce, et cetera, but uh, it, there are more things than tomato sauce and cheese that can go on pizza. You know, when when we were um, living in D.C., I came up with this idea um, called, I think I used to call it Mother's Little Helper, and, and I would mm-hmm. use pizza dough, the crust, you know, mm-hmm. but I would put all these leftovers as toppings. So we, we had some mm-hmm. interesting things. We had eggplant parmigiana on top of the pizza. <laughs> what were some of the other delicious. funny ones we had? Well, we, all, we, yeah. always, we always had anchovies. There's a anchovies, big, there's that's a, essential. There's a big fight over that. But the, the funniest thing I remember about the, the, the pizzeria we used to go to was called Gusty's. Gusty's on M uh-huh. Street in Washington, D.C., and I remember uh-huh. going over there one, one night, and the, and the fire trucks were out out in front of the pizzeria. And I thought, oh, my God, we've, all, we've ordered the pizza, but maybe it got burned and we can't get it. <laughs> well, now, we, you know, now every time we hear a fire truck siren, we say somebody's going to get the pizza because you'd pull up there and all these fire trucks were there picking up their pizza. <laughs> Yes, but, but my favorite of, of yours uh, that I'm lusting after is the uh, the mushroom and truffle and Comte pizza. I mean, that's sure. incredible. Yeah, the Comte cheese is just um, it's a it's very flavorful, but very it works really well with uh, basically and not masking other flavors. Shiitake right, too, right. huh? Yeah. So and, um, and then you do wonderful things with uh, frikas. Um, I never, oh yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Yeah, you love Frico, Frico, don't you? I think that it worked really well to you know we basically wrap a slice of cheese in the in Frico, uh, so you have the the crunchy cheese outside and the pizza inside, and just it was initially an idea to basically uh, you know reheat pizza leftovers, um, but then it was just so good that it seemed like it could be its own thing where you wrap a slice of pizza in, you know, melting cheese, and then you crisp it up, and it's nice and golden, crispy cheese on the outside and a wonderful pizza on the inside. So it was, it was, uh, it was just one of those things that, you know, only happens when you do so many different experiments. Um, you come to realize how other purposes those experiments can have and how you can improve them and so forth. So uh, Frico is definitely yeah, well, Here you have a, a asparagus really with an egg on it, I Yep. Never saw that before. How would you eat that's, that? That's uh, spring. Uh, that's in, if you've. I don't know if you've ever had pizza in France, but it's always served with actually with a raw egg in the middle. So we decided to cook the egg further, so it wasn't completely raw. 
but that is the style. You basically, you have the egg in the middle, you crack the egg yolk, you kind of like stir it around the top. Uh, yeah. So it acts like another style. Where do you get that? Uh, in France. France oh, I, is didn't, big on putting, I never had that uh, one. Egg on a, it's really, on a, on a, it's really funny. That, that reminds me of uh, Aust- Australians have a unique approach to hamburgers, not not pizza. But mm-hmm. it, has, uh-huh. it, has, it has to have a good Australian burger. Has to have beetroot on it, and it has to have a a runny cooked egg on top of it as well. And then oh my god, the, the, the <laughs> I don't know about the beetroot. <laughs> I'm not sure about beetroot either. <laughs> <laughs> The objective of eating the, the the burger is to make sure you can still wear your clothes afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Well, sure. you know, after doing all this research and stuff, I mean, you probably had fixed ideas going into this research experiment. Um, what was the major thing that changed? You changed your mind mm-hmm. on about pizza. Well, I, it's hard to distill one single thing, right, after, you know, well, four years. Well, a few years things is all right. A few things um, is all right. Go ahead. Well, um, I mean, I, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, there's there's many, uh, there's just so many. It, I, it's, I can't, I, even a list of like three or four would be hard to come up with. But I think that, you know, one of the important things is that there are many you know, there's many people who think that there's, you know, you need a particular special water to make Neapolitan pizza, uh, which is not true. I mean, I think any water, as long as you can drink it, as long as it's good to drink, safe to drink, it's good to make pizza. Um, there's also, you know, San Marzano tomatoes, which are, are tomatoes that are prized for their quality and their taste. Um, and so there's there's a group of people that will say, you know, the best, Tomatoes for Neapolitan pizza or San Marzano, but it, it really any quality tomato will work really well on top of a pizza. Um, it's not like San Marzanos have like a, a special, you know, magic. Yeah, not only that, there's so many fake San Marzano tomatoes on the market. That is true. There's, there's, I mean, it is protected by, you know, DOP, uh, Denomination of, of, origi- of Origin. It's protected in Italy. But there's, you know, you can get San Marzano tomatoes that were probably grown in China, but they were canned in San Marzano. So there, there's a <laughs> lot of, like, there's these minor scandals that occurred with, with uh, San Marzano tomatoes. So, uh, you know, they are a little costlier, but, um, but they're, they are fantastic. But there are other tomatoes that also work really well on top of pizza. Nice. So, and, and you end up, your favorite pizza is what? This is your favorite pizza topping I didn't agree with. What's that? Okay. You said your favorite pizza topping was, um, what was it, the, the sauce, the white sauce. I'm sorry? You, you said your favorite pizza topping was some kind of sauce. I can't remember which it was now. Oh, we had, uh, I didn't have a single favorite topping. I think I had uh, numerous toppings that we that we were partial to i mean but it's this isn't to say that we don't like other toppings this is a um a grouping of of different toppings that we we enjoyed and so it's you know there there is a point where you know there's tomato sauce is just done over and over and over again and i think that that's fine but it's interesting to see other sauces also applied to pizza 
Right. Well, how do people get this book? It's it's not cheap, uh, right? Well, no. I mean, I think that I, you know, it's important to to understand that a project that takes four years, that is three volumes worth, is is what it is. It's not going to be a you know sold at cost price. But even your printing uh, process, which is carefully explained, right. uh, and the, the uh, multicolor photographs and stuff, everything is top prime. <laughs> right. And the idea is that it's a book that is it's the only book on pizza you'll need, uh, you know, with as many recipes that are in there because it's a, it's a book that is written with, uh, you know, people who bake at home as much as people who bake professionally pizzas. Um, mm-hmm. So we have, basically, we've worked out our recipes so that uh, pretty much anybody can make use of them um, and make great pizza. So it's it's not cheap, but it's it's not... I think it, it's it's one of those expenses that you know makes makes the most sense as far as instead of buying twenty books on pizza, you just need the one. So. Right. Yeah. I know many chefs and restaurateurs that view it as an investment to their um, establishment to purchase your books, including the, the multi-volume um, modernist cuisine to start with. Um, could we give yeah, them? They, an they can email? go. I'm sorry. They, yes. Well, they go can ahead. go to our websites. They can go to modernistcuisine.com, right. um, and they can purchase it directly from there. Or if they prefer to purchase from Amazon, they can also do that. So, well, it, it's certainly something. And I just noticed the back cover. I hadn't noticed that before. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, we also have a kitchen manual, right? So there's it's three volumes plus and a kitchen manual, and the the kitchen manual is all the recipes that are in the book, they're in this kitchen manual, which is a spiral-bound like uh, book where uh, all the recipes are there so you can easily utilize it in your kitchen. Uh, it's The pages are stain-proof, so you get tomato sauce or olive oil or whatever stain on it and easily wipes off, so you don't have to bring your beautiful books into uh, exactly. the kitchen and get them all sauced up. So. <laughs> well, you're yeah. a wonder, and so is Nathan. And um, I'm, I'm, do you have to take, like, a break before you launch it to your next one, or are you already <laughs> working on your next research project? We we are already, since January, we started our, our new project, and it's focused in the world of baking. So It's focused on what? Baking. The wor- yeah. Baking. Oh, you mean, that's a big topic, the subject, baking. Yeah, I mean, you know, three pies, tarts, oh, my God, <laughs> we don't know yet. <laughs> But we, what we do know is that we have the max has to be five, and um, more than five just changes so many things as far as printing and shipping, and it becomes it's like a, a whole set of, of problems. So we know that it'll it, the limit is five, so we have to make sure we keep it at five. Okay. Now, I, want, I want I want to send I want to send a message before just before we leave to sure. To the, to the people in my native land who like pizza, there is one mm. ingredient which does not belong. <laughs> Are you going to say pineapple? Pineapple. <laughs> yeah, they call it American pizza, you know. Oh, really? Well, you know, the English Hawaiian pizza actually came from Canada. It Canada. was invented by a Canadian. Yeah, and he well. decided to call it Hawaiian pizza, but it's a Canadian invention. Huh. So, 
They should probably do it with pink pineapples. That would not be so jarring. <laughs> I think okay, the problem with that pizza what? is that, I'm sorry, just one last thing. I think the one of the problems with that pizza is that people utilize canned tomatoes. I mean, sorry, pineapples. Pineapples. Um, if it's a fresh, you know, pineapple that is not too sweet, sometimes it can work well. I'm not. I will never order a pineapple pizza, but we have a recipe in our book, <laughs> which we I think is is like a our our version, but it's 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 a an improved version of a Hawaiian pizza. So we had to make sure everybody was happy with our recipes. So <laughs> Hopefully okay. that's okay. Francisco, let this go go, go he well. Make, he, has, he has to make pizza for lunch. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Anyhow, so thank you for talking to us and um, success on this book. I mean, I think there could be a lot of people interested in it because it's probably one of the most, I, I would say, popular foods in the universe, <laughs> don't you? Well, I, I, I agree, and I, I, I hope so. Thank you very much. Thank you, Francisco. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Next up, we've got one of the the smartest, funniest, um, brilliant writer, <laughs> women, uh, called Dorothy Kalins, who, among other things, was the founding editor-in-chief of Severe Magazine, and uh, she has this book out that's really, uh, it's a joy, beautifully written, of course, The Kitchen Whisperers, subtitled Cooking with the Wisdom of Our Friends, and uh, she, talking to her is a delight, and reading this book, you're going to love it. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited to be talking to Dorothy Kalins. Um, it, it, I know it, it's probably not good to call you iconic, but I have to say, you really have been at the center of everything in the food world for how long now? And design, I might say. I'm, for, 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 I, I, had, I had many, many, many good years. Uh-huh. Yeah. Go ahead. And? You sounded like you were going to add an and or a but. <laughs> well, no, there was actually, it was my husband who was in the background trying to see whether we were actually beginning, and I told him, yes, we're beginning. So I oh, good. He thought better of making any other kind of ancillary noise. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do some uh, editing, so if there's an ancillary noise, we can get rid of it. <laughs> good. The, the book we're going to be talking about is The Kitchen Whisperers. Cooking with the Wisdom of Our Friends. Um, you have some of the best people in here in this book. The forward is by Danny Meyer, who's a delight, isn't he? Absolutely. Um, wonderful man. Yes. Everything, inside and out, he's a lovely human being. I think so, too. Yes. Um, his, his book, is, his first book was quite inspiring. Thank you. Yes, yes. I mean, so, Danny's first book. I mean, your, your first book, I'm sure, is also inspiring. Well, no, but she's edited all these wonderful chefs. You've, I guess my thought is, when did you first realize you were hearing all of these things in your head as you cooked? 
Well, I was literally alone in the kitchen, and I realized that so many of the things, it started with washing lettuce, and I remembered yes. hearing my, this is remote, but it's my stepdaughter's French grandmother saying to me in French, you have to wash the salad leaves three times to get the dirt <laughs> off of them. And I thought every time I do this, I think of Mammy Mimi and, and what she told me. And then I started thinking, wait, there are other things that I do because people told me or showed me or I had this memory of them. And then I, then I thought, I can't be the only one. Everybody must have these memories, these, these carried memories from a, a parent or a grandparent or a, somebody they, they, who meant something to them, and they internalize those ideas. And even though there are wonderful cookbooks, and I've done many of them, and I've been very fortunate to do great cookbooks, I think you remember the things that you get from the people you've been lucky enough to be with in the kitchen. You see, that's the concept um, of this. And, I mean, you, you make a um, sort of a, a negative comparison to the videos that people watch. I mean, and you and I are on the same page, by the way, with um, the desserts. I mean, I... Uh-huh. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, not um, my favorite thing to cook. No, I, I don't do it at all. I mean, I just I don't <laughs> even like desserts. That doesn't matter. I don't either. So, but I mean, you were so fortunate to have all these people influencing you, wonderful people in your life. Yes. I mean, to go for dinner with David Tannis or, uh, you know, I mean, just, they're, they're just all incredible. And no wonder you got so much information from them. Well, it, yeah, I was at least smart enough to ask them a lot of questions. <laughs> yes. Um yeah, you said you were not fortunate to have one of these grandmothers. Every time you, you talk to a chef, he learned to cook at his grandmother's knee. Absolutely, and I never had those grandmothers to to learn from. And so when we began the magazine Saveur with my co-founders, uh, Christopher Hersheimer and, and Coleman Andrews, we realized that we and this was now 1994 so this was a while ago and but we felt that the food world was in kind of a a downward spiral where either chefs were so revered and magazines were printing chefs recipes which are utterly uncookable at home yes exactly <laughs> the first or, books we got i mean like well i actually did I wrote a yeah, cookbook with the chef, and I myself have never cooked anything out of the book except a soba noodle dish. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Who was that chef? He was a chef of a private, they actually won an award for the best private dining room in a private club here in Pittsburgh, the Duquesne Club, Great. and he was, Great. He was um, smart on the Olympic, to, to the Culinary Olympic Committee, and so forth, mm-hmm. but... Um, it, you know, there's, there was confusion about the audience. Who are yes. you writing this cookbook for? Yes. I mean, I, I think suspect. That's, a, that's something that I think I was able to bring to 
cookbooks having edited a, a, a magazine for years and years and years. And I kind of knew how to talk to that audience. And, that, and I was the interpreter, in a way, for the, the chefs that I've been fortunate enough to work with and learn from. Right, because, I mean, it needs interpretation. I mean, there, we would have these discussions about what to include in, you know. I mean, most of the people who were going to get this book uh, really were not going to be concerned about three different types of rice that you could choose for every Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so it kind of ended up being a mishmash because, um, I mean, I, 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 the people that, he really wrote for us, probably his colleagues, I think. Uh-huh. But anyhow, um, the, oh, I think I know, by the way, that the Southern Louisiana chef, he didn't want a name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think so, and I feel the same way. <laughs> um, just but by way of... You, you, learn from, you learn from the people you work with and you're the, the, who you've been lucky to work with, and those lessons stay with you. Right. Now, um, about your background, I mean, it's it's pretty startling. Could you just do a brief run through of of the magazine work? And, and so, the, I, 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 my the first magazine I edited was um, a magazine called Metropolitan Home, and it was actually preceded by a magazine called Apartment Life, which I'm sure a lot of people don't remember. But it was about it was for the the the, the baby boom reader who got out of college and was living in his or her first apartment which was which equated with freedom and freedom of style and freedom of not not be not having to replicate anything that their parents did of course the 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 idea that they would make their grandmother's chicken or something like that <laughs> is a strange irony to come out of that spiral so all the years that I was doing metropolitan home I became very interested in the burgeoning American food awareness movement. And we called it uh, the New American Cuisine, I think, before anybody did. But we had stories about people like Alice Waters and Jonathan Waxman and and Wolfgang Puck and uh, just uh, many of the people who were saying, wait a minute, we don't need to make European or Asian or or South American food, we can make our own food from ingredients that that are inherently American and and just reinterpret them and use them in a, in a much more direct way. And that was news then. And yes. I think that gave rise to a, a, you know to a to a whole different way for Americans to look at food it gave rise to the farmers market and and the ingredients that you could find there and the dependence on the vegetables instead of everything having to be a, a complicated sauce and it, it you know it kind of threw off the the european constraints of of formality and and fussiness and and uh, and that was an exciting time to be editing a magazine Indeed, and, and then um, three of us, who, who my two co-founders, Coleman and Christopher, and I, started Sever uh, in 1994, and we we knew exactly what the magazine was going to be. It was going to be authentic. It was going to not be watered down or 
it, it would give people real information. And that was our goal, and we, we succeeded in doing it for, for quite a while. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then we've interviewed um, Coleman, we've interviewed, um, well, we've interviewed most of these people on your list, and Christopher is amazing. Isn't she amazing? Well, she, you know, she, she has Canal House Station now, which is... It, yes, it, we've interviewed her in New Jersey. Yeah, I'm about that, yeah. It's, so I know it's far, it's far from you, where you are now, but it is, it's so worth going there for Sunday dinner because you have a meal that you just can't find any place else in America. It's just, it's the freshest, the most beautiful, the simplest, the fl- most flavorful. She's also an accomplished photographer she did the photography for our friends the jamison's book oh absolutely we know them well yes they're, oh they're yeah john and people. suki yeah they're suki. very good friends we're I close to them, them a couple of times in the book uh-huh yes well they're i mean, I, I i really miss the lamb so it's true <laughs> me too me too we used to we used to um, order lamb, whole lambs and do them over a, a, a grill, over, over a, a, a live fire for, for Easter. That was a oh, great yeah. treat, and I would love to do that again. Yeah. Well, they, they have a lot of sheep still on the farm, but I don't know. I don't quite understand it. We, we, we should say, I should claim, by the way, that I cooked a lot of lambs on the grill, too. Oh, yes. Good. It, there's something very elemental about that that hamburger does just doesn't have. Exactly. Of course, I think your main main achievement, um, Rabbit, was when you cooked the goose on the grill. Yeah, well, <laughs> oh, really? Did, how, did, how did you do that? Because goose has so much fat. Well, I I actually steamed it in a Chinese steamer first. First, and, I see. Yeah, and, and saved and the fat, of course. And then crisped it up afterwards? Sure. So basically... Oh, yeah. The only, the only, the only sad thing was to see the dolls and cents running away with all the fat from the duck. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was a, a butcher shop which claimed that it had du- duck with blood, and it was interesting. It was right across the street from H.J. Uh, Hines Company. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> They went in yeah. different directions, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, now, um, you you sort of accumulated all this information over a whole career. Um, so it's, my next question is probably going to be confusing. But I wanted to know, um, you, throughout the book, expressed certain surprises that some of these brilliant cooks and chefs did um, to kind of um, as shortcuts. What was uh-huh, the most yes. surprising when you found? Well, one, the first, the thing that set me off on that track, and what I call the theory of implied endorsement, yes. which is that if I see somebody who's a really good cook taking a, a kind of a shortcut, then, or I, not really a shortcut, because then, as they say in the book, then all of a sudden you're stream main lighting rate instant ramen, mm-hmm. more like a workaround. So mm-hmm. I, I, it occurred to me one morning after somebody who will not be mentioned, but who is in the book, 
cook dinner at my house, and I open the refrigerator to find a little jar of Beyond Bouillon. Yeah, I laughed at that one. That's really funny. (laughs) And I thought, wait a minute. That's what that person, I'm not going to say the gender, used (laughs) in, in, in what they made last night. And I thought, well, if they did that, then I can do that. You know, I'm so used to cooking chickens down and, you know, even roasting a chicken and saving every single bone and carrot and I know. onion and oh. everything. And um, I still don't, I don't love it. I don't find it satisfying. But sometimes when you need just a half a cup of broth or you need a, you know, just to add some liquid to something, it's perfectly fine. So then I started thinking, Ooh, what else do people use? What else do people do? And I asked a lot of my friends who are chefs, uh, what what do they do? And of course, everybody is very generous. And they, you know, my friend John Kessler, who's a, a journalist, he was the um, food editor and the restaurant critic for the Atlanta Journal Constitution for years, and now he lives in Chicago and writes a lot and he and cooks a lot. He cooks every night. Of course, everybody cooks every night right now because right, that's still, for sure. Still doing that, um, but he he said that he uses Philadelphia cream cheese. Oh yeah, I love that. I howled. I thought that was so funny. I know, I know. <laughs> and I thought, well, well, you know, John John is a trained chef as well as a journalist, and if he well, does hold, that, hold on, hold on, then, hold on a second. Didn't didn't uh, the, the uh, Who's the I'm trying to think of? Sweetheart? Use cream cheese? Yeah, it was, some, it was somebody who, who learned to cook in France, and she introduced the French to cream cheese. Oh, oh. right. Oh, yeah, who was that? Um, we caught that in an interview. It sounds like it might be Julia. 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 Julia Yeah, I don't specifically remember that. But, but you know, I mean, cream cheese you is say not that very this far from the kind of farmer cheese they have in in France. And well, that's what you say. You should you can put it in a food processor and it gets Absolutely. smooth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now we well, sh- and we my should. another friend who actually lives in Lancaster, Pennsylvania now, um, but who is from the well, she's originally from Philadelphia. Um, Kim O'Donnell said that she uses tofu that way. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can see where that would be a handy. You just put it in the blender and it creams up something. And I haven't tried that one yet. Well, look about uh, the uh, chickpea liquid. I mean, whoever yes thought about that. Yes, and that there was a moment there where everybody was saving their chickpea liquid from the can. <laughs> Aquafaba, yeah. Because now that Mike and Steve, um, Mike Solomonoff and Stephen Cook decided that the the hummus they were making with with chickpeas cooked overnight could very easily instead be done with canned chickpeas, and that liquid is uh, is very aquafaba, very yeah. rich, apparently very good. Sweetheart, we sh- we should introduce this young lady to Umfit. Oh, <laughs> Umfit! You shouldn't tell people we use that rabbit. Why <laughs> not? Uh-huh. It's really good. Yeah, it's it's you know there's so much on the market now. I mean, with all the internet shopping and, and so forth, with it and everybody cooking. So uh-huh. um, and, and people, we you know, you send products and things. So we got this whole box. It's and the company was a startup called Umf. O O M P H, and and they they I mean 
the stuff is really good. <laughs> so I was, where, where does it come from? Where does it come from? I, don't I, I can't remember. I can't remember where it's made. But, but if you if you Google it on the internet, it's O O M P H it I T Umfrit. Uh huh. And it and it's got most of the flavor combinations you would you would dream of and say, boy, I wish I had time to create that. Yeah, they're, exactly. They're all in the box. Uh-huh. They're all in the Umfrit box. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, you mentioned. Um, Burlap and Barrel and, and Floyd yes. Cardoz in your right. uh, book. And, uh, of course, they they did all those um, uh, this, um, blends. Yes. The, mm-hmm. uh, Floyd's blends. And uh, you mm-hmm. can just buy them ready-made. And I think that that's kosher, isn't it? I think it is. You know, um, Lior, uh, Lior Lebsarkaz, who has La Boite, does, does incredible spice blends. I mean, he's yes, a we've interviewed he's him, too. It's amazing. Yeah, he, he's awfully good. And um, Did you love his cookbook, though? It's, it, it, he just identified the seasonings as his blends, <laughs> his herb blends and spice blends. That's right. He, well, he does like to sell his blends. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed at that one. I couldn't yeah. make all those recipes either. Um, now, there, it, there is this underlying thing that comes up. About um, you know the the your surprise. I keep repeating that, um, but like, why with Maya Kamal, who was also who's also interviewed, why in the world would she not have actually made those blends, those spice blends? Oh, I, I think those spice blends appear in all of her sauces. Uh-huh. And her, her her beans, they're all they're all yeah. But yeah, that's right. She's not really in the spice business, but she's grown her business beautifully. Oh yes, I, I remember when I she trust, first started I, out. I I met oh, her at the did. fancy food show. Uh huh. She just said, you know, she just started out. She was so young. <laughs> she well, she had just come from her last job. Before that was as photography editor of Sever magazine. Uh huh. And that's, well, that's how we got to know her, obviously. Her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, what did you learn from uh, oh, um, poor Floyd Cardoso? I, it breaks my heart every time I mention him. Oh, uh, what did you learn yeah. from Frank Bruni? Oh, I well, interestingly, I, you know, he wrote a wonderful memoir called Born Round, and I, yes. I, learned, I, I, I loved reading that because it was about how food was driving a lot of his good instincts and a lot of his terrible instincts and a lot of his family relationships. And so that was that's really a biography. And then uh, one of the things that I loved was that he and a, a colleague from the New York Times, Jen Steinhauer, did a book on meatloaf. And they both said, because what, when I was... I started this book, as you kind of have to, thinking about what you learned from your mother. Yeah, I I read that. a very uneven set of things that I learned from my mother. But one thing was her meatloaf, except that I discovered her recipe um, box that I never even knew existed after Mm -hmm. she passed and we were cleaning her apartment. and, And I never... All I could do was reconstruct by memory, by taste memory and texture memory, the, the, the meatloaf that she made. And one of the things that Frank Bruni and, and Jen says 
say in their book is that no veal. veal. There's entirely too much veal in meatloaf and no veal. And I think my mother did use uh, a pound of veal, a pound of pork, and a pound of beef. So I had to rethink this recipe doing just beef and pork because my butcher didn't even have ground veal because it's not politically correct to keep uh-huh. veal that way. And, and I, it's fine. I, it's just totally fine. And so the, that meatloaf recipe, I just felt my way a, 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 around it. And I did remember one of the things that she did do, which was to soak bread in milk. Right. And mix it in. And it wasn't later that, it wasn't until much later that I realized that that was a, that's a French, classic French technique called panade. Making a panade is, is soaking bread in milk and mi- mixing it in with meat. So my mother had that. She did it. I don't know where it came from, but <laughs> that, it, it, it's what, it, it's what makes a meatloaf kind of silky rather than gritty. Uh huh. Yes. I, I agree. Um, the, the, some some of the recipes passed down now are pretty hilarious. Can you remember the the one about the tri-tip roast? No, <laughs> tell about that. Yeah, I think you'd like this one a lot. You, you <laughs> want to do it or you want to? Let you me do it, Robert. Go ahead. Okay. So, so, so anyway, the, p- the person involved in this recipe always made a tri-tip roast in a particular roasting pan. Mm-hmm. And, and she, nev- she never knew why her mother did that. She just did that. And the same pan was always used every time she made a tri-tip roast. And she finally, after probably 50 years or so, got up, got up the, in, enough courage to ask her mother why it was that Tripe tip roast should be done in this particular pan. Was well, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, okay. But the, the, it, it, the recipe says you first cut off the tip, right? Oh, I forgot that part, yes. <laughs> uh-huh. it, 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 it turns out that that was the way that the tri-tip roast would fit into the roasting pan. <laughs> That's right. That is a very practical reason. It has nothing to do with flavor or... <laughs> No, no. On the on the subject on the subject of meatloaf, we discovered relatively recently, I guess, we not probably four or five years ago, that you could buy ground veal, and we re- we read about a recipe for that in Lobel's cookbook. This is the Lobel's. Mm-hmm. That's a butcher shop yes, on Madison yes, Avenue yes, uh-huh. in New York. The New York butcher. The New York butcher with for, the, for those people who are willing to invest their life savings in a meatloaf. <laughs> but, but, but the, sec- the secret I discarded was that what was included was ground chicken, which is way too damp and horrible. Oh, oh yeah, why? Why? And only if you had to. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, well, well, we left that out. But the key, the key ingredient that, to me, makes my ground veal meatloaf a success is Chinese five spice. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Yeah, and that, that, that's in the local recipe. So star, star anise, for example. Well, it, it's just it's just a. F- he, he uses a five spice. He could use yeah, star the mint, so that's yeah, yeah, that's a very yeah, spice. it's very strong. It sends it a very different way, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
Now, how did you select the people that you featured in the book? I mean, I can understand Coleman, uh, Michael Anthony, um, and I don't know uh, Sylvie Bigar. Oh, you know, it was just I was writing about Casale, and I remembered that we had gone to her house, and she was making Ariane's Casale from a kit, so it fit in with that story. There really were memories and stories, and Mm -hmm. as far as the people who I really learned from, I really learned from Coleman, even though I don't like to give him the credit of, of, of teaching me, but, he, but I did, and, uh, and I learned, I'm still learning from Christopher, and I, you know, when, every time I do a book with somebody, I did two books with Michael Anthony, the first was the Gramercy Tavern book, and the second was a book called Beas for Vegetables. Oh and, yeah, that's and, right. That book we did, we cooked in the entire book in my kitchen, and we photographed it there. And so we were literally in the kitchen with him as he was slicing and dicing and sautéing and everything, every single recipe. And we were, none of us was really shy enough, you know, shy to say, you know, we, we wanted to make these home cooks recipes. They could never be restaurant recipes. And so we, there was a, a wonderful, lighthearted banter about that. So I, mean, I learned so much from, from cooking with Michael and translating his ideas into helping him translate them into, into a cookbook. And then uh, the same thing with David Tannis. I worked on two books. I love David. Yeah. yeah, and he's just so he's a, a wonderful, wonderful person. And you just and, and Christopher and I were lucky enough to go when he was living in France. Where he was cooking, he was running the kitchen at Chez Panisse for six months a year, and then he was yeah right. Um, then he was living in Paris for six months a year. Poor darling. And um, <laughs> he, he, he um, so we we went and cooked with him in his tiny little kitchen. And in the fifth arrondissement, and we learned. Uh, uh, so it's really, I mean, this is really all from real life. And I got to be friends with Marcel and Victor Hazan. And, and I mean, you never, know, tell me about her. And I mean, of all the people that I've met, she's the one. And it's funny because my background is um, it's Italian. It was funny that uh-huh. she's the one person that I never quite connected to. Uh-huh. And Victor was was uh, difficult, really difficult to deal That's with. Terrible. I mean, he is. He's still. He's still. You know. Oh, he's still. And you know the 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 thing is, you you know, you say you cook with Marcella. You don't ever cook with Marcella. You stand in the kitchen with her and hand her something if she <laughs> she you know she 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 she's just she's does everything the way she does it. But she is an explainer. And mm-hmm. she's she she was so smart and so beautifully educated. I I, I tell in the book smart. about how she had two doctorate doctoral degrees and she in science and she explaining things was very important to her. It was way more important than how the food looked on the plate. Yes, she was for flavor essentially. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I had, it it really gnaws at my head. I had saved a recipe for some potato dish that she made and somehow the pages got separated and uh, Victor would never uh, give me the the rest of the recipe. (laughs) 
had it been published? I have all her books, so tell me what it is, and I'll. Say I don't know. I think it was a magazine because it looked like it was from a magazine, and oh. now I can't remember because it goes uh-huh. back a ways when she was still alive, and, yes. and he wouldn't give me this yeah. recipe. So I have part of this recipe, oh, and it must goodness. have been important for me to cut it out and keep it. You yeah. Know. <laughs> All of these but, but then, the, but then, I mean, I begin the book with a chapter called "Mothers and Daughters," where oh, I yes, kind that, of I was interested in that too. Explain what what I learned in my mother's kitchen, and then I end it with a chapter called "Daughters and Mothers," exactly. where I talk about how kind of comparatively little my stepdaughter did. She grew up in my kitchen from the age of ten, and uh, and and how and how. She's learning her own way, but but in an entirely different way than I learned. She, you know, she just wants to get it over with and get it done and make it taste good. And but she's just not as interested in it. And so that I think, I mean, to me that was a very touching chapter to write because. Okay. We were living through it. She was up upstate. They 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 live in Brooklyn, but they they went upstate to their a little country house that they had, and they lived there. And she has an eight year old son, and he she they put them put him in school, and they changed their life. And they're they're there for a second year right now. So it's it's just fine. You know, it's a very I think. It, the idea is that we continue to learn and we continue to teach, and it's a process. And well, the kitchen whispers are the those voices you have in in your head as you go about. No, I know and, they do. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, I tried to say to Sandrine, you know, you you think it happens automatically. You think, you know, you grew up around great cooks walking in the kitchen and getting dinner together. Well. That isn't the way it happens. They're they're in their heads the whole time. They're thinking about where they're going, what their next move is. Do I have this? How about that? You know what happens. It's, it's a whole recording that plays in your head. Exactly. So I tried to explain that to her in the in the book. Well, yes. Um, it, do you think we're going in a new direction? I mean, at this point, I mean, everything seems changed to me. Well, I think that. Uh, home cooking has has taken over as the preeminent way of feeding ourselves, mm-hmm. and you know we aren't we aren't great order order inners. We don't like to order in food because it's just not that not good, good by the time it arrives on your yeah. doorstep. And and so we just you know right now when the seasons are so beautiful, it's still September, but I still was able to buy tomatoes this morning and corn. And as long as you've got things like that, it's it's wonderful. But the idea of of cooking at home is is well. I mean, it's been pretty central to our lives. But yes, but not in everybody's. Not in everybody's, but, and I think it 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 has. By do you think the restaurant habit will come back? Yes, you do. Okay, and do you think? Yeah, I mean, I've asked a number of people, and they always say yes. So, well, so. I think that there might not be a, a place for the the mediocre. I mean, well, maybe that's a hope. <laughs> well, uh, yes, I mean, we we have they just reopened some amazing restaurants with a whole different relaxed vibe to it. 
uh, across this country and even overseas. I think it's easy. It's well, it 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 collides, doesn't it, with with the idea of an abusive kitchen and people not wanting to exactly. put up with that or behave like that anymore, yeah. and and that's that means that there's no such thing as as kind of some rigor that has to be obeyed it's really it's really people together there was a piece in the times this week about uh co-chefing where there's not one you know it's not the french model of the brigade where the guy walks in and he's always a man who is the chef de cuisine and he's you know he's the tyrant and then it goes downhill from there. I mean, the mm-hmm. best book I've ever read about that is Jacques Pépin's um, bio- um, biography, because it's an autobiography, because it's it's a wonderful story about growing up. He started working in restaurants when he was 13 years yeah, old. Yeah, he's wonderful. We've, he's, he's interesting. I mean, oh, that, absolutely yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. And and. But he, you know, and he talks about what it was like to grow up under that Terrible. very punishing regime. And I think people just aren't putting up with it anymore. Well, no. I, mean, I know restaurants that won't reopen just because they're, uh, they can't find a cook. <laughs> they can't find that's, a sous that's chef. Right. Well, I think that's, that is a byproduct of the pandemic because people decided they were going to move or they weren't going to put exactly. up with what they what they did before and so th- that's all healthy change don't you think i do and and actually i know lots of uh, chefs restaurateurs that are um, raising wages and and you know i mean it, it gets complicated but uh, i just was thinking in terms of food if we weren't going to be in a place where everything is much more relaxed uh, even what you're eating is just more relaxed and also uh, most books we get anymore are vegetarian. Uh huh. So, yeah. Well, there's a yeah. there's a huge shift to that. There's no question yeah, of that. And the healthy stuff. Well, yeah. you know, you and I could talk forever, Dorothy Kalis. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's been a delight talking to you. And I think, uh, listeners, that you will be really rewarded by this book called The Kitchen Whisperers. And I think if you get this book and you read it, you're going to find things popping into your head that you didn't know were still that were living in there. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> Me, I'm, I can remember my mother saying that she only used garlic to rub the salad bowl inside. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Mine too. Uh-huh. <laughs> so Peter just used a whole head of garlic for the fish. <laughs> oh. Well, thank you for talking to us, and well, much success welcome. with this It's been book. a pleasure. Right, well, we're on our side, too. And- That's it for today. Two sterling interviews. Enjoyed both of them enormously. Yeah. And uh, we've gotten Francisco committed to letting us interview him over his next book, which has already started, <laughs> and which is going to be desserts. Baking. Baking, Okay. Desserts is baking, right? Well, baking, okay, anyway, baking. Anyway, he already did bread. Well, baking must be different. I guess. He's probably got pies in there at the very least. And anyway, we, we we better not go on anymore because I'm sure you have much to do during this wonderful day. And in the meantime, until next week, we hope you'll join us then. Bye-bye.